<coughs> we'll hear argument now, number 951478, J. Prince, the sheriff of Ravalli County, Montana. Is that the correct pronunciation, Ravalli? Ravalli, yes, Your Honor. Uh, and uh, United States versus Richard Mack, the sheriff of Graham County, Arizona. Uh, Mr. Halbrook. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In the federal state context, this court has upheld laws passed under the spending power, the commerce power, including the power to preempt state legislation, and the Article VI duty of state judges to hear federal causes of action. The interim provisions of the Brady Act at issue here is not an exercise of any of those powers. The Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held that, in essence, Congress may commandeer the sheriff's departments of our country as long as the laws concerned do not interfere unduly with their duties. The only alternative for the states is to enact laws which meet Congress's standards to get out from under or exempt themselves from the federal commands. To May I ask a preliminary question, please? Yes, Your Honor. You represent both Sheriff Prince and Sheriff Mack? Yes, Your Honor. Sheriff Mack lost the election for Sheriff of Graham County in the last election? That's correct. As of January, this coming January, Sheriff Mack what won. What date? Um, I believe it's January 1st, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. And will the case likely become moot as to Sheriff Mack on that date? Well, I, I know that the, uh, the successor in office has been identified to the clerk, and um, I, I believe that this matter will be addressed further in the future, but I, I don't think it will be moot. Uh, depending on, um, uh, under this court's rule, the succession in office is automatic, and in my understanding, unless that person withdraws. Mm -hmm. And um, Sheriff Mack may also be employed by a uh, police department in the same county, uh, and as such would continue doing the same kinds of duties that are at issue here. Well, yes, but the he wouldn't be a CEO then, would he? Yeah. Or whatever you call it. He wouldn't be a covered by the statute. A chief law enforcement he, he, he officer? Would yeah. be, he would continue to be a chief law enforcement officer as defined by the statute here, and therefore he would be in a position of conducting the, the checks. And would you mind telling us where in the record we can find uh, the evidence about the extent of the burden on the sheriff's department in uh, enforcing this law? Yes, Your Honor. Is, is there some reference to the record where we can find in, in both cases, there were affidavits, and then there was um, a hearing with testimony, and I would refer, Your Honor, in the uh, Prince, uh, the petition, uh, the appendix to the Prince petition for cert, the affidavit, uh, I'm sorry, that's in the joint appendix. Uh, that would be at, at page 9A of the Joint Appendix. And the exhibit at 19A and then the, a partial transcript of the hearing where testimony was heard at page 25A. And in the, the MAC appendices, there would be the, um, the affidavit in the Joint Appendix at page 5. Maybe you can file that with the clerk later, the references, please. Yes, Your Honor. Well, Would you like to summarize for us what it showed in your view as to the extent of the burden? Uh, yes, Your how Honor. How many applications are filed in these two counties, and, and how much time of the um, deputies is required? To yes, Your Honor. In, in regard to the, um, the, the Prince case, we have uh, approximately a dozen officers. We have a situation where um, 
the checks were estimated to take between one hour per day and several days in the case of a very thorough check. In the case of, of MAC, we have testimony that the checks routinely took one to two hours per day. These are departments where between one and a half and two officers are on patrol at any given time. Um, these well, are. It would be rather strange to have one and a half on patrol. That, that's just an average, Your Honor. The, the, um, in the case of Graham County, I believe there were 10 deputies uh, total employed. And when you count time off and um, eight hour days and, and whatnot, you end up with an average of one and a half. And in the case of Rebelli County, Montana, we have about two on patrol at any given time. Well, do you think that's, uh, you think that that's uh, determinative here, how extensive the uh, incursion upon the uh, officers' duties are? Uh, no, Justice Scalia. Would it be constitutional as to those officers who did take uh, a large proportion of their time and not at constitutional all. as to others? Not at all. Th these are just the facts of the case. I, I think that uh, these departments could have plenty of staff and not much to do, and these commands would be unconstitutional. We've not heard cited yet a specific provision of the Constitution that justifies these commands. We've seen a lot of dancing around the Commerce Clause and Article 6 of the Constitution, and my answer is no, that regardless of the burden or lack thereof, that these commands are not well, constitutional. Well, has Congress imposed a burden on these chief law enforcement officers to report, or some state official, to report uh, on traffic fatalities, for example? Your Honor, that comes under the spending power. There is a provision in regard to highway funds mm -hmm. that um, provides that to get the highway funds, there are a number of burdens uh, on the states, including the, the drinking aid. In exchange and for receiving the highway That's funds. correct, Your Honor. Now, the, the government has, the SG has filed a brief citing any number of cases, instances through the years where Congress has uh, required uh, states or local officials to perform some duties. And you assert that in every case it was linked somehow to funding? As far as we could determine, the statutes we looked at that were prominently cited by the government, the one that you mentioned, the, uh, the fatalities mm -hmm. reporting, and then the reporting of missing children mm -hmm. relates to the National Crime Information Center, which is a voluntary system of record reporting between the federal government and the states. Mm -hmm. and, and we haven't found an instance where there was not some nexus with uh, receipt of a grant or some other uh, inducement uh, inducement that would be under the spending power. Now, how about some of the early cases that seem to involve immigration and required court clerks to keep some sort of a record or take some sort of an affidavit? State court. In our view, that clearly comes under Article 6, the special duty of state judges to hear federal causes of action and to do other things that, that, that Congress passes that relate to um, the, the Article 6 provision. And Congress under Article 1, Section 8, it is empowered to enact a uniform rule of naturalization. And we interpret those early naturalization statutes as being under that provision and then being applied uh, through the state judiciary through Article 6. Well, you don't think that under the uniform rule of naturalization that Congress could compel uh, state sheriffs uh, to make background checks of aliens, do you? Absolutely not, because the, the sheriff is not a state judge, and Article 6 refers explicitly to state judges. Yes, so, but I don't think a whole lot turns then on the power of Congress to pass uniform rules of naturalization. Congress is acting within its appropriate sphere, just as it acts within its appropriate sphere under the Commerce Clause. And, and the state judges have to apply that through Article 6. Uh, so I think the, the clearest example of the early Congress that uh, applies here 
what was the uh, the same day that Congress passed the Tenth Amendment, they passed a resolution that the states would be encouraged to enact legislation authorizing state uh, local officials rather to keep federal prisoners in their jails and it was seen as a completely voluntary function uh, for which the sheriffs would be paid. Mr. Holbrook, the uh, government in its brief on page 31 has a footnote 21 citing several laws. Do all of those, uh, as far as you know, fit within the kind of we give you this uh, and in return you give us that? I don't know whether all of them do. I, I know that um, uh, several of them do, and these are, are very. Some of them are very obscure laws. I don't know that there's ever been any litigation on them, so I, I cannot say that there is a specific power in the case of every one of these laws uh, that uh, one could link, for example, to the spending power. Well, my question is: Are you saying that there's nothing like this? That in every case there's either something explicit in, in the Constitution? like the obligation of state courts that you get from Article 6 uh, or extradition. Is this the first of a kind, or is there anything that you would concede is like it? Well, I think there, there may be some of these laws. For example, I believe there's one cited here about uh, underground storage facilities where the states are supposed to inventory and report underground storage facilities. And frankly, Your Honor, I was not able to find a specific item in that statute that related to the spending power. It's just one of those obscure laws that, that I'm not really sure what the, the basis of it is. But, but in terms of precedence for this law that we have here, I think the, uh, the, the, the law in New York versus United States was one that uh, was on all fours with the law here in terms may, of the may I ask not about precedent, but just about your theory of the case. Is it your position that if, without having any spending power at all, but just uh, acting under the Commerce Clause, uh, Congress would not have the power to have states report to it the number of fatalities involving children caused by airbags uh, in a 30-day period or something like that? Uh, we we find no power to do that. Justice Stevens, we find no power in the Constitution just to do that. Well, the power, I suppose the argument would be the power is to regulate commerce, and they're trying to improve safety in the highways and all the rest of it by getting this data. But you'd say that the Commerce Clause doesn't authorize that. It, it would authorize commerce to be regulated, but it would not authorize the, the, the coercion requiring information uh, state provided by the state. To do that kind of reporting. And I'd like to point out that this uh, reporting... Couldn't report Congress do it under the spending help they give the states for the road systems? That's the way they do that yeah. now. That, that is the basis for this law. Mr. Halbrook, uh, the, the obligation, as I understand it, on the part of the law enforcement officers is to use reasonable efforts, is that it? That's correct. Do whatever is reasonable. Is there in the statute any mechanism for review by anybody uh, as to whether a given law enforcement officer did use reasonable efforts? No, Your Honor. It's, it's a very vague term, and it, basically the law says that the CLEO, the chief law enforcement officer, shall use reasonable efforts to ascertain whether receipt or possession of a handgun is lawful. But then it goes on to say, including, and we interpret this as a minimum that has to be carried out, including research into whatever state and local record-keeping systems are available and in the national system designated by the Attorney General. Do, do you think it would be open to a court, to this court, to construe that reasonable effort criterion as one uh, which turns on the law enforcement officer's own view of what, in relation to all of his other responsibilities and in relation to his resources, is reasonable? 
Can he be the judge of reasonableness? To some extent, perhaps, because it, the language is there, but I, I think that there's a, a, a vanishing point or an ending point. If he doesn't do any, uh, makes no effort whatever to conduct these background checks and, and to make these legal determinations, it, it seems that he is not making a reasonable effort. Well, unless he is the judge of reasonableness. If, if he were the sole judge of reasonableness, so that there was, in effect, no review of the adequacy of his efforts, would you have a case? Well, I don't think he is the sole judge because... No, but I'm asking you to assume my, my hypothesis. If, uh, he, if, he were, if the statute were construed in such a way as to make him the sole judge, would you have a case? We would, we would have no case if it was totally optional. And I think your hypothetical would be equivalent to changing shall to may. Well, that isn't optional. I mean, if, I'm, if I am compelled to make an honest judgment about whether I have the resources to do this, um, presumably I'm not going to, you know, uh, perjure myself. And, and I will therefore, as a practical matter, be compelled to use resources if they are available. Well, as, I? As I, I agree with you, and I, as I understand so therefore the question, your answer should be we would continue to have a case because it would indeed continue to compel the state officers to do something. As I understood the question, the, there would be no duty at all. And, and if there no, was no, no, the, the question was there was no review that the final decision as to what was reasonable would be the decision of the law enforcement officer and there would be no review of that decision. That's the hypothesis. On, well, on that hypothesis, I would still would you, have would one problem left, I think, okay. which is the perception of the sheriff as not being a law-abiding sheriff. In other words, if, if Congress enacts a law, constituents in the community, many of them think the law should be enforced if it's on the books, um, and the sheriff in all cases decides that he doesn't have to do anything, and he completely rejects any execution of the law or consideration of execution of the law, then he does have the political damage, and this is particularly... Well, he would have, I, and I think your, your point is well taken, but would that, uh, would that place him in the position that, that the opinion in, in the New York case, for example, described as, as being essentially uh, uh, an agent or an employee, as it were, of the national government to, to carry out a national government policy? You might put him in a political spot, and I think you're right. But would that rise to the level of the, the obligation uh, that, that in the, the broader passages in the New York case uh, was, was condemned as, as, uh, as unconstitutional? Well, I think it would still come under the prohibition on requiring a state to administer a federal regulatory program in, in the sense that there's got to be some kind of minimal requirement. Well, of course, in this situation, are there not criminal penalties for someone who doesn't uh, follow the requirements of the statute? Your Honor, the so it would be a jury that would be interpreting, presumably, whether the sheriff had reasonably uh, performed the requirements under the statute uh, and could result in a criminal punishment, as I read the statute. The, the, the statute broadly says whoever violates 922S is subject to incarceration. Right. And the um, uh, one district court held that that meant exactly what it said in the Mack case, uh, that that was a threat of criminal prosecution. When the law was first enacted, in fact, the, the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms spokesman on this law said that there were criminal penalties that applied to law enforcement officers. However, none of the appellate courts have held that the criminal penalties apply. They have held basically that that issue is moot because the, uh, the Justice Department interpreted the law not to apply, interpreted the criminal penalties not to apply to CLEOs. And what is your position? 
My position is do the criminal penalties apply to your client? It says whoever. I think under the plain language of the statute, it, it does apply. It, is, is that your position, that it does apply, that you're, you're taking the position before us that your clients are subject to the criminal penalties? What I have to say, because I represent real clients here, is that if the government says they don't apply and the, the criminal penalties don't apply and these are my clients, I'm going to agree with the government because I do not want my clients subject to a, a court ruling saying that criminal penalties apply to conduct. And that's a reasonable there. enough position, isn't it? There are a lot of statutes, for example, that, that, that impose uh, uh, civil penalties uh, and criminal penalties upon regulatory violations, and they have a general penalty provision that says whoever violates right. this law. And there are a lot of provisions in the statute that require the secretary to conduct rulemaking, that require the secretary to do this or that. I don't know anybody who's ever tried to prosecute the secretary if he fails to conduct a rulemaking. I mean, it's a violation of the APA, but it's hard to say he's in violation of the act within the meaning well, of the Well, I, I think you have to look at each statute and what the criminal penalties say, but in this yeah. case... Is, is that a reasonable way to interpret this? Well, well Your Honor, it says, after the sheriff. it says dealers shall do certain things, and it says pleos shall do th certain things. The word shall appears in both. And if you want to say that the criminal penalties don't apply to the sheriffs, I don't know, maybe they don't apply to the dealers either. I don't know who they apply to. But I take it your position here, as you announced it a moment ago, is that the Justice Department says those penalties don't apply uh, to the sheriffs, and that's your position here too. Is that correct? Well, I have to say, uh, frankly, we're in a dilemma because we're faced with the, fa the, the language of the statute, which is clear enough. And when we went into this litigation, we asked for preliminary injunctions protecting our clients from, from criminal prosecution. And then the Justice Department came up with a memorandum saying that uh, we're not going to interpret the law in that way. So we certainly would like to uh, preserve, in essence, these letters of immunity that our clients are not prosecuted. I understand your briefs. In your view, the statute would be equally unconstitutional whether it has the criminal penalties or not. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. why are we fussing about this issue, Ellen? <laughs> Um, we think there's other, I mean, the government has said... You have to answer questions there, but... <laughs> the, the, the government has clearly argued that uh, they, they could bring the sheriffs into court on mandamus or injunction actions if they don't enforce these laws. There's, there's something of a paradox in this whole area, is there not, in that if you prevail, it means that um, you, one, have a huge federal bureaucracy, or two, uh, withdrawal of funds perhaps funds well in excess of what the f funds uh, that you would really expend in this area. In, in, in a way, um, if you prevail, uh, you might be striking a blow for big government. Absolutely not, Your Honor. The, the funds are specifically prohibited to go to CLEOs. The, the funds are for the updating of the... the I'm assuming a complete revision of, of, of the Act. Well, not, not, not even then, because... Uh, in, by November of, of 1998, there is to be online the permanent Brady Act provisions under which the federal government will undertake these functions. There will be an instant check where the uh, a, a Federal Bureau of Investigation basically will be conducting yes. these background checks, and all of our Tenth Amendment problems go away with that. Well, wouldn't Fine. they go away as well if the government offered money? to chief law enforcement officers to administer the program, and you would have an option whether to accept the money and administer it or not. As long as the option was there. Uh, you wouldn't be here. We would no not be here, absolutely not. But there was no money and there was no option. Now, case. do a lot of chief law enforcement officers around the country comply voluntarily with uh, this act? 
Well, I don't know how the word voluntarily would... Well, they are complying. They, they are complying. Like but, 40 states or more? Well, I, actually, the Brady Act, the provisions we're talking about only apply in about half the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, maybe 24 states. Some of them have enacted their own programs, the, the, so some states, Yes, Your Honor. Some states already had laws on the books that met the federal criteria. And, and other some states, are complying without protest. Uh, well... Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, some states enacted laws to get out from under this provision. That's how we get up to the 50% of the states are, are exempt from this. And then as far as compliance, I'm not sure how much compliance there is, even in the, the, the states where, uh, even on the part of the law enforcement personnel who support this law, the brief of the state of Maryland and, and other uh, states says that, um, in support of government, said that all you have to do is the computer, the federal computer check. And that's not what the law says. It seems like they're nullifying the law if that's all they're doing. Because it... Does it not? Records? All, all available state and local records. May I ask you a question? I want to be sure I understand your, your position. It's prompted by Justice Kennedy's question. Supposing they amended the statute to say that all investigations shall be done by federal employees, FBI agents or something, but that the chief law enforcement officer of each community must make available to the federal officer any records that will help them find out this information. Would that be constitutional? No, Your Honor. That would not. Not, not, not as long well, as that, required. That's, that's just the question that I have, actually. I mean, if you track this through, I take it there's a statute, for example, which says that states have to report missing children. A, a, a statute that's based on highway funding, yes. It, which it's not, I just see they're setting up a task force, and they say in the task force, what it says here is, Every federal, state, and local law enforcement shall report each case of a missing child mm-hmm. under age 18. To, to the NCIC. Yeah, right, yes. period. Right. Not whether you take money, don't take money. So I take it you're saying that's unconstitutional, too. Well, the, the, I interpret that as being based on NCIC. When you you know, I don't the, see anything here that says you have to do it only if you take money. Your Honor, when you look at the other provisions establishing the NCIC... And then, you're then, then if it says you only have to do it if you take money, then I'm not right. It's not a good example. There must be an example. Maybe it's this case where Congress has the power under the Commerce Clause to say report some things, right? That, but the issue is whether it's necessary and proper. Correct. That's the issue. Now, why is it that in Germany, in Switzerland, in the common market, in many other federal associations, people think it is more respectful of the states? to impose minor duties upon state officials than to set up central bureaucracies. Where is it in our history or our Constitution or in the language that it is more respectful of states to have a nationwide computer system run by the FBI than to impose minor reporting requirements on state officials? What is it in law or history or anything you want to refer to it says it's more consistent with states' rights. In, in our Constitution, Your Honor, Where does it, say that? it says that the President shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and it provides for a federal executive branch to execute the laws that Congress passes. And why is that more respectful of state rights to set up, let's say, a federal police service than to say the local police service has to report a few things? In other countries, well, they think the opposite. And so what I'm looking for is history or language that says why it is here the opposite. It, because of the text of the Constitution and the intent of the framers, we, we rejected the so-called New Jersey plan under which the federal laws would be executed by state and local officials. 
And that's the plan that we have. That's our Constitution. Of course, when the federal government uh, executes the laws, the federal government also has to pay for their execution, right? They, they pay so for if you it. vote for a massive regulatory program, you also have to vote for the taxes at the federal level, which makes... Uh, which makes uh, federal representatives less popular back home. And it's, it's much easier if you if you uh, allow this uh, impose an obligation on the states to do it, and the state legislators can take the heat by raising the taxes. It's also clear in terms of political responsibility who's responsible for enacting the law and executing the law, and that's something that's broken down here. We have Congress passing a law, uh, taking credit to that extent, but then having the administration of the law being imposed on the shoulders of local law enforcement Let officials. me follow up on an earlier answer you gave, Mr. Oman. Uh, I understood you say that even if the federal government were to send out people to look at state records, that that would not be permissible. And I, 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 th I think that's a rather strange answer, if I understood it correctly. Certainly, in say, in voting rights cases, and the federal, federal uh, FBI people come and look at state voter registrations, if no activity were required on any part of state agents, just the federal government yes. would send an agent to look at some, say, uh, criminal history records, would, would that be violative of the Constitution? Well, in, in the Voting Act cases, we've got the 15th Amendment, and we've got several other amendments but, that relate to voting rights. But here you have the Commerce Clause, which certainly gives general authority over things that move in commerce, and there's no challenge here on that ground. But these are not commercial records they would be looking at. There's no nexus to interstate commerce if, if they want to go through the records. But this is the kind of thing where cooperative federalism really works. There's always been the sharing of information voluntarily. It's, it's not a problem. No, but you're saying it would be unconstitutional to require that challenge. Wasn't that your answer to Justice? Y yes, Your Honor. I don't know what the Constitution well, would Just be. take criminal records, for example, not necessarily tied to... Uh, to Commerce. You mean it would, I, I take it it's your position that it would be unconstitutional to require access by a federal investigator to state um, uh, uh, conviction records. Is that correct? Uh, access from a police department, perhaps, but by the same token, there's no constitutional power that the states would have to require the federal government to share their records, but it's the kind of thing that comes under cooperative federalism where well, they, they share these records. Position. I thought you were here taking the position that this particular program required the county to expend its efforts and occupy the time of their deputies to devote first and foremost to the execution of this particular law as opposed to their own need for hunting murderers or rapists or robbers. Absolutely, I thought that's that was why we're the here. And I think that's totally different when you say, no, we wouldn't even agree that a law that says a federal agent can come and look at state records would Your be Honor, allowed. I mean, that, that's a remarkable difference in that, position. That, that's a hypothetical question. That, that issue hasn't been briefed here. No, we have followed the counsel, citation to the authority for that. Your position, counsel, has been that there's a lack of power here. Yes, Your Honor. And even if 10 minutes a month required by the officer, if the federal government orders it, you can't do it. I don't know what... 10 minutes a month or 10 minutes a year. That, that's your position. That's our position, absolutely. And if they pay a million dollars... If they pay a million dollars of the cost, if the state says, we don't want your million dollars, we don't want a billion dollars, we don't want to do it, period, yes, in your position, they can't be forced. That's been the money. precedence of this court under the spending yeah, power. It was Ten minutes a month in the execution of a federal law, ten minutes a month in acting in an executive capacity to implement, not to obey, but to implement a federal law. 
Isn't there a difference between that and simply obeying a subpoena for documents or, or a statute that requires information to be provided? Which statute could apply to public in, to private individuals as well as to a government? Yes, Your Honor. We don't object to that, and we don't object to subpoenas. The, this Court's precedence on, under the But requiring information to be turned over is something that you can do vis-a-vis uh, -vis a private citizen. It, it doesn't treat the government as a government. You're treating the state as a governmental it, 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 institution, it, however, when you require it to enforce the law. If, it, if it's a law that applies universally under this court's precedent, such as Garcia, th this law would be valid. If it's, sub if it's yes, a subpoena to a state agency, it's valid. Public, public records. Private citizens don't have authority to make public records available. Well, if Your Honor, has its own secret files on, on people who violated the law, the question is, can the federal government command the state to make, give access to those documents? And you say no. Well, if it's records related to criminal conduct and subject to a subpoena, we have no problem at all with those records. Yeah, I'm not talking about the subpoena. Thank you, Mr. Halbrook. Uh, General Dellinger, we'll hear from you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and uh, may it please the court, uh, Mr. Halbrook's uh, answers at all argument are, I believe, fully consistent with the position that they have taken in their brief, and I think for understandable reasons. Uh, they believe that there is an entire failure of power on the part of the federal government to enact the law of this kind, just as if it were the government of Brazil or the king of, of Belgium. Well, can the state require the federal government to do something? No. And Why doesn't it work in reverse? Because of the supremacy clause, I think, Justice Kennedy. The well, but the, there's a federal design here, that, uh, and, the, and the question is whether or not uh, it is consistent with the political relation that subsists between the citizens to have one government interfere with another. The supremacy clause resolved that issue, Justice Kennedy, where Congress is acting as it is here, fully within the core of one of its enumerated powers. The... The, the, the three critical points, I think, are, are first that, just to tell you what I think I would hope to discuss, are first that because this law does not impermissibly require the states to govern, but rather essentially applies federal law to local law enforcement officers and to gun dealers, requiring them to exchange vital information, and because Brady uses local law enforcement as the source of this information for the very good reason that these offices have, for now, the most ready access to the relevant information. And finally, because the interim Brady provisions are by definition so reasonable in their approach that it is necessary to resort to resurrecting a rigid rule like the repudiated position of Kentucky against Denison. Well, well, suppose that the Congress had said uh, that because we have an emergency here and we're not up and running, uh, that for five years uh, gun permits, uh, gun transfer forms will be processed uh, by the House of Representatives in their field offices, in their home offices. Uh, the entire burden of complying with the act was up to the Congress of the United States, the individual congressmen and their staff. That would be a clear violation of separation of powers, would it not? You don't, you don't think the Congress itself could administer this scheme uh, through its congressional field offices? Congress may not be saddled with a duty of executive branch governance. It, it saddles, I agree with it that. Saddles, uh, but and, to, and, to that, and, that, and that is because there's some very basic notions of accountability that underlie separation of powers. 
why should, if the, if the Congress could not ignore separation of powers, how can it ignore the, ignore the federal balance when the same considerations are, are applicable? That is to say, a blurring of political accountability. Well, I, it is not the case that Congress is ignoring the principles of federalism. I think the Act is quite sensitive to those concerns. I would not necessarily concede that Congress could not seek information that was in the hands of congressional offices and require them to transmit it. If uh, uh, Congress can require congressional offices to... Well, that, my hypothetical was is a uh, well, I hypothetical, that. I will admit. Uh, yes, I understand that, Justice Kennedy, and it's a fair one. But it is important to realize the extent to which this is a law that applies to... Well, let, let me ask you whether you think that under the constitutional framework we have, which preserve states as sovereign entities, the Congress can pass a law mandating that um, every state administer uh, Congress's welfare plan without offering uh, financial assistance and an option to the states to do that. Can they just pass a law saying we think it's in the public interest to resolve uh, issues of poverty and we mandate the states to carry out our extensive program that we devise, and the states are to manage it. No money, no option. You go do it, states. Or, or some health program, or some state highway safety program, same thing. Can Congress just pass it, and without giving the states an option or funding for it, say, you attend to this, states, you manage it, you enforce these laws we've passed. Can they do that? Justice O'Connor, Congress can impose upon state and local government officials the responsibility for assisting in the execution of a federal program as long as, first, it does not implicate the serious concerns of state sovereignty and political accountability that are identified in New York. Well, don't you think it does when Congress says we're passing this law and setting a national standard for health care or welfare? Or highway safety and passes it off to the states directly to administer those programs, not giving them an option, not funding it, not giving them an option to take money and participate. I understand that. My answer is a, is a predictive one, that it would quite likely be the case that such a program would, in fact, run afoul of the principles of sovereignty and accountability because it would place the states in a, in, in a position of making policy according to a federal mandate. And, and this is just a smaller version of that example. I, not? Let me put a hypothetical where it wouldn't put the states in the position of making any policy. It's a federally designed welfare program. All the, Every jot and tittle of it is, is, is set forth in, in painful detail in the statute. Your answer then would have to be, then it would be okay. Congress could go home and say, well, we've balanced the budget, having, having left all of the welfare costs to the state. Your answer would be yes, that's constitutional, right? My answer is that that... No policy judgments left yeah. to the state. My answer is that such a statute would not, as you define it, violate the principles of sovereignty and accountability set out in New York. Yes, now, yes, exactly. Now, I do not... Because you think that it is, and this is, this is what the government's brief says, it seems to me totally counterintuitive, that it is better when you leave the states no option, no policy judgments at all, and make them simply dance like marionettes on, on the fingers of the federal government, that's, that's okay. 
but it is bad if you leave the states some policy judgment. I mean, that's so counterintuitive. Why wouldn't that make it worse to leave them no policy judgment rather than make it better? Because of the reasons this court set forth in New York versus the United States. New York versus the United States gave the states an option. They could manage the, the waste or they could, by taking over it themselves, act purely executively rather than legislatively. What, what Congress That would have been purely executive action. That option was available in New York, and we nonetheless held that it was bad. What Congress has done here is, I think, Justice O'Connor, not a smaller version of that large program, because they have been careful to take responsibility for the policy choices and then for the administrative policy choices. This act is administered by the Departments of Justice and Treasury, by the ATF, the FBI, by assistant U.S. attorneys, by the Bureau well, of Prisons. I think Justice Scalia has addressed that point in, in exploring whether uh, taking away the policy choices saves it. Yes, uh, the notion that the federal government can just commandeer state and, state and local government totally to administer some federally enacted program, all the details of which are spelled out, I think it is important to, to note what Congress cannot do. Um, first of all, in the answer to your question and Justice Blaise about the extent of the burden, there is some limit, as this Court suggested in Garcia, to how much of a purely financial burden Congress could put on the states if Congress made all the policy choices itself. That, and answering those hypothetically is difficult because it would depend on the degree of the, degree of the national interest. In 1917, Congress had every state government devoted its entire resources for a brief period of time to registering people for the World War I draft. You would want to know the degree of flexibility and discretion that were permitted to the states to carry out their own functions. Also, you, you would say there's some difference between wartime and peacetime as to congressional authority. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, it would depend upon that and all the other circumstances as to how great a burden Congress could put. But I want to, I want to be clear that we believe that under the, the vital principles of New York versus United States, there are provisions that would be unconstitutional for, that are different from the provision here. For example, even if it only costs the state $5 and their officials five minutes of their time, the Constitution would be violated if Congress had decided to offload some of the political responsibility here by requiring each city council and county commission to vote in the provisions of the Brady Act. Even though that's fairly costless, requiring them to act like puppets and to call the roll saying, all those in favor, raise your hand, and they're required to raise their hand when they're not in favor, or has some other draconian alternative such as taking title to handgun liability. That would violate the sovereignty principle. Similarly, if Congress had said that the states must, by the year 2010, reduce the number of, of handgun sales in the state by 50%, it would be worse than simply having Congress take political responsibility for the choices Congress made, because the states would then be forced to undertake uh, what might be politically unpopular choices to solve a problem. They can do that with the environment, can't they? I mean, aren't there hundreds of billions of dollars of unfunded mandates that the states uh, uh, complain about and create a political issue? I mean, what's the line from what I read? The camel is hundreds, lots and lots of money in obligations that Congress imposes upon the states all the time. Well, under the so what's the principle of federalism that says they can do that, but asking a police officer to report a missing child or asking a police officer to uh, report a safety statistic or to look something up in a computer suddenly is a violation 
of the Tenth Amendment, but imposing hundreds of billions of dollars of costs, as Congress does in many laws, is not. What's the principle? I don't believe there is any principle. Uh, I don't well, believe there's any such unfunded mandate. What unfunded, I, I, I know unfunded mandates? And, uh, I'm not saying here. I just read in the well, newspaper that there is a thing called unfunded mandates. Yes, that the but, but Justice Breyer, those, those are often unfunded within the context of some other provision where the courts, are, where the states ostensibly have have a choice. I mean, I do believe that would. Be you don't do it, we'll do it, and the states do it simply to avoid having the. But, but you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Do I, it, that's correct. We'll send the those, those are not constitutionally uh, impermissible. But if Congress were to pass the Perfectly Clean Air Act of 1998 and say to the states, "You've got to have 99 to 44, 100 percent pure air by the year 2000," Congress gets all the credit, and the states are then forced to choose between adopting mandatory carpooling or uh, exorbitant gasoline taxes. That's not what happens here where Congress takes a political responsibility. And I believe that, that once you're in this area, although we believe and have uh, as our most difficult question, thinking about what the outer limit would be if Congress were, contrary to 200 years of its history, to start imposing burdens so substantial, even though they did not um, implicate sovereignty and accountability, that the states would be impaired in carrying out their functions. I, I, the more serious question is the one that I, I think that, that, that Mr. Holbrook dealt with as well as he can, which is, what is the principle that tells Congress that has extraordinary legislative power to regulate this, these mobile items called handguns that they simply may not impose these duties on gun dealers and local law enforcement officers who are sitting there on the information, if they'll look it up, to tell Congress when guns are being sold to violent felons and other dangerous buyers. Only governmental duties cannot be imposed, is all he's saying. If it's informational, or it's, it's all he should be saying, it can get information from, the, from a government just as it can get information from an individual. But to require a government to perform governmental functions is something else. Well, in this, it, it would be, Justice Scalia, in the sense of New York versus United States, if those governmental functions were the kind of policy impositions that Congress was imposing um, with the low-level radioactive uh, waste act at issue in New York that forced the states to undertake the hard policy choices that Congress, in fact, made here. What they are... Here, Congress is, is, is simply telling the states to do something that local, state, and federal governments have done for a very long time. Which no unpleasant policy choices are left for the local government. They, the local government does not have to decide whether, A, to raise taxes, or B, to divert police officers from hunting murderers and rapists to looking up these records, or three, I don't know what, to declare bankruptcy. Uh, aren't these all unpleasant policy choices that the, that the government has imposed upon, uh, upon the localities? The only policy choice that I think you could honestly call a policy choice that Congress requires the chief local law enforcement officers to engage in here is one that creates the flexibility of the Brady Act. It is telling them that the efforts that, that they need to make need only be reasonable efforts. They give them the flexibility well, why to decide. Why is that enough policy choice to create the problem? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that uh, even assuming that the scheme is not voluntary, and I take it you're not conceding that it is. We do, not, local law we do, not, we do not take the position that it is, vol right. that it is so, voluntary. So that the local law enforcement officer has got a real policy choice, number one, in, in choosing between his Brady Act responsibilities and whatever other 
local law enforcement abilities he's got. And number two, uh, I, I suppose even independently of that, he's at least got an initial policy choice to make about how intrusive an investigation is reasonable enough. And I would suppose that that latter decision could be politically a very explosive one in some communica- communities. So even on your own standard, why isn't that enough for unconstitutionality? Because the kind of policy choice that he's making, if you want, I, I have to agree that you can call anything a policy choice. I don't agree that the way this act works imposes or forces the CLEO to make these decisions about intrusiveness. That is to say, he decides what efforts are reasonable. He gets guidance from the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau of the Department of Treasury, has put out guidance, and they have said... Well, that may be fine, but the people who are being investigated, I don't think either know or much care that there may be a BATF memo, uh, and uh, to the extent there is flexibility, it's the local office's choice, uh, and to the extent that he is even exercising guidance from from BATF uh, in his relationship to his constituents, he is still being placed, in effect, in the, in the position of a policymaker. This is, I think, a difficult point in the case. But I think it is a policy choice so limited and so beneficial in its flexibility. That is, rather than saying, you must check a certain number of records, what the Brady Act says is we're going to give you flexibility to make the, the, the kind of choice you have to make already of how you allocate your resources. What Brady does is simply to add one more additional item to the list of Well, duties. it has to be done in five days. And so the local county has some massive uh, prison escape or riots going on, and the sheriff can't send his deputies out to deal with that because he's only got five days to apply. And doesn't the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms take a position in, in the memo that the criminal penalties do apply to the uh, sheriff. I, 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 uh, Justice O'Connor, first of all, uh, the, it is emphatically the case that where there's a prison breakout, the sheriff has the discretion to do no, zero, Brady Act checks where it's not, where this is entrusted to, the, to his sound discretion, the reason that the reasonable efforts clause is put in there is precisely so that he could choose uh, to carry out his state functions instead. They Doesn't the reasonableness include the amount of funding that the county gives the sheriff? Doesn't the county have to provide enough funding to allow him to do this duty that's been imposed upon him? Wouldn't it be declared unreasonable if the county clearly has not provided the sheriff's office enough funds to do it? He is required to make some judgments. He's required to make some choices. He has some political accountability for those choices. I don't deny any of those things, but all of the political responsibility that can possibly be claimed has been taken by the federal agencies in this case. You can call. What, you about, have, a, what about a situation in which the, the, the county says, uh, as a footnote to the budget, not a penny of the sheriff's budget is going to be spent doing Brady Act investigations? Um, that means the point of political accountability yeah. at that point is directly on the sheriff. Uh, uh, Justice Souter, when the state says you may not do any Brady Act checks or you may not spend a penny doing Brady Act checks, that statute is preempted under the Supremacy Clause by the Brady Act. The, I mean, every private who sorts potatoes thinks that, between large and small ones, thinks that when you get a medium-sized potato, you're making a policy choice 
but but here it is only in the flexibility about the amount of resources to be expended. Think about how the same choices are going to be made when the state has to have somebody report missing children to a well, national what, 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 what if less. What, what if the Board of Supervisors in one of these counties said, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff for us already, and go ahead and do the Brady Act, but put it at the bottom of the list. And then it, it turns out, in fact, that they put it at the bottom of the list, and they never get to it. If there are, uh, this is a law that is, that is entrusted to the sound discretion of the law enforcement officer. I do well, not... The way they exercise their discretion my, is they obey my, the Board of Supervisors and put the Brady Acts up last. My answer would be that it would not be reasonable to make an a priori determination going forward that this was always the, the, the last matter to be done. The fact of the matter is, Justice O'Connor, I think, asked an important question. Don't many CLEOs like this law and are happy to comply with it. I mean, the answer is not just some, the answer is most, but that, I mean, in fact, they wanted this duty. They want, the, the major law enforcement organizations wanted this duty placed on local law enforcement for well, some of the reasons Justice well, we, Kennedy suggested. We, we don't ordinarily decide constitutional questions. I mean, are we going to say someone who raises a First Amendment claim, gee, plenty of other people have obeyed this law, and here you are complaining about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mr. Chief Justice. My point is that they, they wanted it for a very good reason, for the reason suggested in part by a, a question from Justice Kennedy, that the alternative of having these duties imposed upon a substantial federal bureaucracy when they are more easily done in the 3,000 counties that have more local familiarity. Yeah, but I, than I suppose the answer to that is as the Constitution recognizes that each branch of the government, state and federal, has to make a certain cost-benefit choice. And if Congress wants to have some huge program, I suppose it can pay the political cost for it. In this case, the, the, given the fact that you have, for example, 56 FBI field offices, one for every 30 counties, would be extraordinarily inconvenient as well as inefficient. And the, the relevant records are where local law enforcement is. Congress didn't do this simply to uh, offload its burdens. That's where the arrest warrants are for fugitives from justice that are not on the NCIC, where you can look up the local search warrants. Justice O'Connor naturally leads to the question, why not make it voluntary if most CLEOs want it? I think there's a, something much more serious than a free rider problem here. This is a chain that, that may be no stronger than its weakest link. And I think the, the reason that local law enforcement officers wanted Congress to make this mandatory was that they understood that if you have one county in a region or a state that simply announces we are not going to look up and find out whether gun buyers are felons, that's the counties where felons will buy their so, so federalism is now being used to ensure uniformity. I thought it was for just the opposite purpose. Federalism is being used here, Justice Kennedy, to mitigate, in this case, the effects of the enormous interstate mobility in handguns by ensuring that there is some effort made to see which illegal buyers are doing so before guns are sold. I mean, it, 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 would you agree with me that this is a very rare exercise of federal power? I, I noticed in, in your brief that you could find very few examples. It's I think that observation... How, it's a, it's, and it's surprising how often the federal government uh, tells uh, the state... Uh, 
uh, how rarely it tells the state you must do something. Justice as Kennedy, opposed yes. to the fact that you shouldn't do something under the supremacy. I agree with that observation, and I think it, it, that in a sense it cuts both ways here. It shows, I think, that, that Congress has, has not abused the fact that when it's acting under its legislative power, it may call upon, uh, impose, require some duties on, on local officers. It has not abused that, even though I think the founders would be surprised. So if they, it is necessary and proper. Well, it's necessary and proper. If, if it is necessary and proper. If, if it is necessary yes. and proper on occasion to impose minor duties but not take over whole programs and implementation of enormous kinds of welfare programs or whatever what's the distinction what is it that makes it okay to impose a duty upon a state court to hear federal cases upon a governor to extradite officials upon policemen to report missing children uh, but doesn't uh, 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 impose a duty upon those same officials that's really much more burdensome than that. What's the principle? Well, How do you interpret the necessary and proper clause to get there in light of the Tenth right. Amendment interests, uh, etc.? I take your question to be where you have a law such as this, it does not implicate the concerns of sovereignty and accountability. What happens if the number of those duties expands so greatly that it begins to inhibit the ability of the states to carry out their functions. Unlike this law, which builds in the flexibility to carry out state functions. I think that is uh, a question that, of course, you need not decide here. I think you, because of Justice Kennedy's observation about how rarely Congress has used this, you will probably never have well, my particular the standard will be, Justice Breyer, the standard will be whether you have so seriously interfered with the ability of the state to carry out its own functions, in light perhaps of whether it's the war power or some other very serious national emergency that is causing you to do it. It is not unlike a question that would come up under other issues, even under laws of general applicability that might at some point interfere with the state's ability. Basic question. Do you think the Tenth Amendment has different meaning depending on what uh, affirmative exercise, what, what uh, what power of Congress that is relying on was the Commerce Clause, the War Power Clause, the Spending Clause? Does the Tenth Amendment vary in its meaning depending on the clause? It you may, uh, Justice Stevens, with respect to the Civil War Amendments, which I think, as the Chief Justice has noted, are, were designed as a, as, right. a, as a limit on it. I do not think it otherwise uh, varies, except that it is, it is important not to wholly disentangle these, these issues. This is so fully within Congress's commerce power because at the time of the Constitution, handguns were made locally by craftsmen and available only locally. It is due in significant measure to commerce among the states and the extraordinary mobility of handguns that guns made anywhere are now available everywhere that roads or waterways uh, or airports can, can reach. And it was to mitigate the harm of that cheap national availability that Congress tried to take steps in 68 to prevent uh, those guns from being sold to persons who were convicted felons. And but what, but what Congress has done here is to say local uh, police officers are available throughout the country also, and therefore we can regulate them. Uh, Justice Kennedy, I think it's in, it, it, it is significant that it's not merely their availability, but the fact that they were uniquely well situated. The frustration is that a gun dealer who is forbidden to sell a gun to a convicted felon but doesn't know who they are. He gets a form that they check off that says they're not convicted felons. The information that this individual may be a convicted felon is right there in the same town. It may be a few blocks away in the office of the local law enforcement chief. So in the five years before we get this national system online, 
which will itself not contain all of the categories of 922G. It's a rough and ready way to get the most readily available information with, you know, minimal efforts to check reasonable records makes all the sense in the world in this interim period. Why not wait until there's a national system with these records available at the gun dealer's desk? The answer is that there are 13,000 handgun murders a year in this country. And half the is, is often inefficient, is all that you're saying. I mean, uh, yeah. That's, Sometimes that's why, not, to, that's why not many countries in the world have it. Sometimes it's a lot they, easier to do everything, uh, you know, uh, by command. From Sometimes the solution to a serious problem can't be reconciled with the requirements of the Constitution, but this is not such a case. General Dillinger, may I ask you before yes. you finish, if you could just address the severability question because you said something before about if you if it was voluntary it wouldn't work because anybody would buy their guns in that place that doesn't participate uh, thank you for allowing me to say that it doesn't work as well uh, if it were if it were voluntary that is to say if uh, one Cleo can put up a sign saying uh, he won't uh, check for records he will not but uh, it nonetheless works as Congress intended, and therefore I think there's no serious question of, of uh, non-severability here. Thank you. Thank you, General Dellinger. The case is submitted. We'll hear.